The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, and welcome to episode 400 of The History of Literature. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast. Mike Palindrome is here. I know you are all excited about that. How do I know? I see the reviews, people. I get the emails. One review said something like, Jack Wilson is is everything that is good and bad about humanity. Wait, what? <laughs> that kind of stopped me. Everything good about humanity? That's a little over the top, maybe. But, of course, who am I to disagree with the discerning opinion of one of my dear listeners. But everything bad about humanity? I mean, I'm not out here committing atrocities or anything. I thought that was a bit of a a drive-by shot, but okay. I absorb them. That's what I do. 400 episodes. Your skin gets tough. People love literature a lot, and I'm talking about something they love, and they have ideas about how I should be doing this differently. I get it. But then the review goes on to make what I consider the, I've come to view as the standard Mike Palindrome pivot. Da-da-da-da-da-da, Jack Wilson, XYZ, da-da-da-da, and Mike is even better. So many times, people. Jack's great, and if you like him, you'll love Mike. Okay. So, Mike Palindrome, secret weapon, I guess. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I like Mike, too, so I can't disagree. It's always a good time when Mike Palindrome joins us for the show. Today is no exception. Here's what we have for you. This is episode 400. What a milestone. I kind of can't believe it. We made it to the top of the mountain, but it's not the summit yet, is it? 500 would be a summit, A thousand? Geez. I guess we'll keep going. Although that 500 might be enough. I don't know. This is getting a little crazy. Remember my goals at the start of this thing. A million downloads was one of them. Make enough to earn a living was another. Earn something, I think. I That was how I put it. I didn't want to have yet another hobby where I just poured time and money into it and got nothing out of it. So I do earn a little bit now, thanks to all of my wonderful patrons for your generosity, and to all the people who have contributed over the years with virtual coffees. Those sites are patreon.com slash literature and historyofliterature.com slash shop. And thank you to my advertising sponsors. My goodness, I'm not quite earning a living, but we are not at zero either. So thank you for that. My appreciation to all of you. But I only needed to hit just one of those two goals. A million downloads was one. Do that and then stop. That's what I thought at the beginning. Here we are, five million downloads and counting. We might even hit six million, but actually we will hit six million by the end of the year. So maybe I should readjust. 500 episodes, and 10 million downloads. Those would be some milestones I could feel good about, right? Does anybody care about this stuff? 
If I can't talk about it on episode 400, well, when can I? All right. I can talk to myself in the mirror in the darkened room at midnight. Well, I have enough else I have to say at that point, people. Sheesh. Hmm. Just gave myself a bit of goose flesh there. Get thee gone, flesh of geese. We'd better start the show. This was from an Instagram poll that my friends at the Podglomerate put out. They run the HOL Instagram account, those saints. And they asked what episodes we would like to see. I think I've already done one. We did Pessoa. We knocked that one out. But we recorded this uh, conversation with Mike before we did that one. So we might be talking about Pessoa, too, as an upcoming episode. I can't really remember. I do remember that Mike was here, and I had fun talking to him. And I hope you have fun listening. A lot of book talk, a geek out. Great writers who haven't been covered yet, and great readers, meaning you guys, as we say in Wisconsin, or used guys, as they say in the movies, or all y'all, as they say in places that know what they're doing, as all y'all is clearly the best way you can possibly say the plural form of you in English. Mike Pres Mike President. Mike Palindro. <laughs> Off to a great start. Well, why should episode 400 be any different? It's not like I've gotten better. <laughs> Mike Palindrome, El Presidente, talking to all y'all and me after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is our old friend Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, who's been here for at least a few dozen of our 400 episodes, including a couple where he flew solo. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. I forgot to tell you, I think this is going to be the 400th episode. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. That's a testament to people actually reading out there, all those naysayers <laughs> saying reading is dead and... 
I guess that's right. Yeah. Or maybe they're listening so they don't have to read. You know, the uh, overrated episode, Books You Don't Have to Read, is still one of the most popular ones. Okay. So let's look back a little bit. Do you remember the first one we did? Was it First Novels? I think it was Graham Greene. Oh, okay. I would have to check. But yeah, First Novels was pretty early. Yeah. But I think Graham Greene, reconsidering Graham Greene might have been the first one we did. And are there any moments that stand out in particular as you look back over the past several years any drafts you enjoyed more than the others or could you pick a favorite topic or discussion that we had i sort of enjoyed the drafts where we drafted countries yeah that appealed to the like the risk <laughs> risk player in me and... <laughs> right and we had the battle royales where we were putting together a marshalling our army with England versus France, for example, and the UK or uh, US versus USSR. Yeah. And I like the raising readers. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's right. I point people to that one in email a lot because people will email me and say they have young children and they're wondering what I would recommend for them to read and everything. And we did a whole episode on that. I think every episode I've enjoyed because I love rereading and preparation for the episodes. I've just gone through my books and I, I annotate as I read and reread. So it's been fun to kind of look at lines again and yeah, look at openings. Yeah. Now I have a couple of Mike Palindrome books where you annotated them and then loaned them to me. I never gave them back. <laughs> so I've, I've, I've seen it in the margins, but I haven't seen it in years. I'm wondering, are the books that you have, will you have, annotations from three or four different rereads yeah well i used to do them in different colors yeah <laughs> but my wife kind of was horrified that i was writing in pen oh so i just now i just do it in pencil but i'll actually write like this is my fifth reread <laughs> i did not notice this like <laughs> until now yeah like this is the... <laughs> So you can look back and see some of these. I know you read every three or four years or something. You can probably look back and, and see this is what I found interesting at this point in my life. And at that point in my life, maybe we should do an episode where you take us through one of these. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah. I mean, I some of my books are so they're kind of lively, like angry, you know, in the margins. Oh, you're engaged oh. with the yeah text. Yeah. The ones I have from you from college will have annotations like, what is going on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those I mean, I, the early days. <laughs> I think I used to read almost purely for style. Mm. I think because of all the Fitzgerald I read. Yep. And it literally was like sentence by sentence. That's what interested me. And I almost, I mean, of course you care what's happening to the characters, but I'm, I'm more interested, like, is this like, is it unfolding in a way that I wasn't expecting? Mm. And so, yeah, every once in a while I would just be like, is this the same day? Like, I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I can, I can remember you showed me a, either a story or a paragraph or something you had written and I underlined something in it. And you then wrote, we were doing this, I think, in class, which is why we weren't just talking. We were exchanging notes or something. And you wrote in response to my underlining whatever sentence or phrase that it was, not all the Fitzgerald has worn off yet. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so now let's look forward. Our Instagram account at the History of Literature, which is run by the wonderful team at the Podglomerate, posted a poll asking people for what episodes they would like to see going forward. And I'm thinking, I was thinking about wrapping things up, that this would be the last episode, number 400. And then I thought I'll go at least until number 500 and we'll see how things go at that point. But we have gotten a ton of great responses from this poll and what I thought you and I might do as sort of a celebration of our first 400 episodes and looking ahead to the next 100 is we would talk about what the readers or the listeners had asked for and then draft some episodes that we agree should be at the top of the list of episodes to do. So before we get started with the draft, are there any general thoughts you had about the poll results or do you want to just jump in? I love the suggestions. I, I just love the range of, and I also loved how sort of highbrow a lot of them were. Yeah, and right. They really were. They really, uh, a lot to live up to. <laughs> yeah. I would have a lot to read. A lot of these are authors I I have not explored in much detail. You know, that's, a, that's the craziest thing about people who read contemporary fiction is... Mm. I just, I can't do it. I mean, I, I, I do read contemporary fiction because I'm part of a in-person book club. Yeah. And they're so eager to read, you know, the latest books. Yeah. But there's so much good stuff to reread. Yeah. Uh, and then there's old stuff that everyone raves about, which I haven't read. Yeah, right. And I used to, I would read a book by, let's say, Virginia Woolf. I would read To the Lighthouse and then Mrs. Dalloway. And then I would decide, I'm just going to read everything she's written. So right. I went through a phase where I was reading books like The Mill on the Floss and, you know, books that maybe wouldn't be on everyone's list, but I wanted to really explore those authors. And it was usually because they had written one classic book, but they had also written a lot of great other books. So I'm with you. I tend not to want to do authors and works from the last 50 years. I often will do it if a guest wants to do it or like we did the Nausgaard episode. I think he's someone who's worth talking about. And I have a lot of fun when we do that. But I find it hard to get the kind of angle that I want to get for a history of literature podcast because what I really like exploring is the reception of the book and what it meant to people when it first came out and what it's meant to people since then. And frankly, a lot of contemporary literature, although it might be really important to us today, in another year or two, no one will be talking about it anymore. So is that really part of the history of literature? It's more like a history of, of pop culture or something. It's like a, a galaxy of mailbox values that you get in the in the mail <laughs> <laughs> of sale, sale items. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I also noticed that a lot of the suggestions we got were from the mid-20th century. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if you noticed that. Authors who were maybe born in 1910 or 1920. It's really a rich period, and uh, it's a great it's a great period. I like those authors. They would be sort of the generation or two ahead of us. And uh, so a lot of my picks were kind of from that era as well. So I tried to be diverse, but I also just diverse, not only in terms of nationality and so on, but just in terms of uh, I could have picked five French authors, for example, almost from the same time period. They're all authors that I would like to do, but uh, I didn't want to. I wanted to mix things up a little bit for the draft just to 
to pay tribute to the range that our listeners suggested. So I will let you pick first. Oh, and also there are a bunch of these that uh, were suggested that are episodes that we've already done. So I'll note that when that comes up, or maybe I'll list those at the end so people can realize they uh, can actually go find those in our archive if they'd like. But then again, I also don't mind doing a great author a second time, especially if a guest wants to discuss that person as the author of his or her favorite work. So we do cover a lot of these two and three times. Yeah, I was going to I was going to mention some of the ones I don't pick, but you know, and, and that you've already covered, but you could, you could do, you know, another episode taking a particular angle. Yeah. yeah. So we'll do that at the end if, if, if you don't choose them. Okay. So I will let you take the first pick. What is your top episode suggested by a listener that we should do at the History of Literature? So it was a personal pick. It's Richard Yates. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I just. Yeah. I think. He's such a beautiful writer. Mm. I, I just think, you know, it, it, the way he shows the struggle against loneliness and, you know, making bad career choices and bad marriages and, like, not so welcoming neighbors. It's so, I mean, each story uh, within his novels is like a sermon. It's like this, it's such a moving form of uh, such a moving style and uh, i think um i always think of nicole krauss's quote the author uh when i read yates she says there are two types of people in the world those who prefer to be sad among others and those who prefer to be sad alone <laughs> <laughs> and if you're a yates reader it's the former because once you've uh -huh. read him when you meet other yates readers it, it's like this just the secret handshake yeah you know so I know everyone knows about Revolutionary Road, or I actually prefer Easter Parade, mm. and I think it's the the best book to, of his to start with. So I have a whole category here. As usual, I tried to get my mind around this by sorting all of the suggestions into various categories, and one of my categories is Mike Special, which <laughs> uh, was one where I thought, okay... I might not pick this, but I probably don't need to because this is a Mike special. If we do this, it'll be because Mike will be on and we'll be Mike will be driving the the car on this one. And I had Richard Yates under that category of Mike special. What I wrote down in my notes was Richard Yates, a Mike special. Good Lord, so depressing. <laughs> but I I guess you're saying there's some value in being sad together that we could have some camaraderie in our misery i mean I, when i think of the way people recommend books to you and they're so enthusiastic like it, it can't help but rub off and then you go home and you you buy the book you go home and you start to read it and you think i, I kind of you know like some of it don't like some of it i don't think that's the case with richard yates i think if you spend the time to read his book you are so engrossed by it yeah. um Maybe you don't like it because it's depressing, but you certainly don't like it because you can, you know, step away from it. I mean, you just, you you fall into his books. Yeah. So it's kind of a, a dying breed, uh, writing depressing books. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm finding, I'm finding a lot of contemporary books, like strangely upbeat. Oh, well, maybe that's a publishing thing. Maybe publishers are demanding that. Yeah. Okay, I will take my number one, which is one I've been 
promising for a while. It's been on my list, I think, since we began of episodes <laughs> to do, and I just have not gotten around to it. Maybe because it's such a a broad topic, and that is Fernando Pessoa, the Portuguese oh. poet, writer, philosopher, translator. And I think part of it is because he had these different pseudonyms or heteronyms that he was using. And it's such a, uh, he just sort of expands into, I don't know if I need to do it in multiple episodes or how I should tackle it, but, you know, he had several different distinct personas that he was using to write in. And it's a, he's got a fascinating body of work. The Book of Dis- Disquiet is sort of his major work that is uh, the one that I've spent the most time with. But there's it's all good, and he's we don't do enough from Portugal or Portuguese writers. We're, it's definitely somebody that we need to have on the list, and uh, I will get to him soon. Yeah, I don't know anything about him. I mean, I, I think I, I will say some of the episodes I've enjoyed of yours where I'm not on are ones about authors I don't know much about. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because I had never heard of him and he was on the list of Harold Bloom's uh, The Western Canon when that came out, Mm. uh, which I've got my issues with Harold Bloom. But books like that, I just I I can't resist if somebody's putting together a list or telling me (laughs) things I should read or whatever. And he was maybe the only name I hadn't read everybody on the list, but I think his was the only name I had never heard. And he only lists 26 people, and Pessoa is on that list. Everybody else I had heard of, and so it kind of intrigued me of who is this guy. Uh, I don't want to beat myself up about it because I think that's kind of a testament to how underappreciated he is just in America. I don't know Mm -hmm. if it's that the right editions haven't come out at the right time or why it is that we are very familiar with you know, someone like Ibsen and Moliere and people like that, that maybe people aren't sitting down to read, but they still know who they are. Generally, if you're a if you're a literature fan or an English major or whatever in America, you've probably encountered those names and could tell you kind of some basics about them. But Pessoa was just somebody who I had completely missed even into my 20s. Yeah, I mean, I would love to to hear more about him i yeah i feel like he could be the the gateway to a lot of other poets yeah and he's he's kind of in that modernist he was born in 1888 and it's such a great period in that uh of everything that was going on in europe especially as the you know during the i guess the teens and 20s and early 30s was when he was writing most of his work so okay so what is your number two it's uh, Roberto Bolano. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and guess what category I had that one in? <laughs> that one, I didn't even take notes. I just wrote Mike Special. I think you've been actually talking about doing an episode on Bolano for uh, years. Yeah, I mean, I've been meaning to reread him. I've actually only read 2666 and The Third Reich. I've read half of Savage Detectives, and I I, mm. I kind of didn't like it. Oh. Um, and I was reading a, an old New Yorker article that said that there, there were a couple of things I agreed with the article and disagreed. One of the things I agreed with 
the article said, you have to go back to Balzac and Dostoevsky to find masters of the novel form who show so little interest in the sentence. Mm. And so yeah, right. this, this writer was saying that Bolano is a great writer, but he's, his, his, it's, he's not a very good writer. Yeah. There's something really kind of enjoyable about that too, though. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I looked at the last sentence of 2666 and obviously it's not going to spoil anybody's ending, but it's, it's this, it's soon afterward he left the park and the next morning he was on his way to Mexico. <laughs> and I, I, I was thinking there are actually like thousands of lines like that yeah. in, in his writing. But again, it's, it's really the way the sentences are creative and they, you just get into this like dream yeah. mood reading him. Yeah. You know who that reminds me of is less of who we might consider literary novelists and more like a John Irving or a Pat Conroy or right. uh, maybe a Stephen King, although that kind of usually that involves some, some more it's closer to genre, but these writers who are trying to write about people and, and adult characters and situations and so on, but they are writing almost more like a Dickens or a Balzac where they're, they're just trying to tell a story, not trying yeah. to create a, a modernist, or you know something worthy of standing on the shelf alongside Ulysses. And again, you know, it's a long work, and I feel like a real testament of a long work is that it requires like a lot of originality to pull it off. Mm. Um, so the article also said that avoid two six 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 as long as possible, and for heaven's sake, don't start with it. <laughs> and I, I disagree with that so much. Yeah, I just I I I have friends who have only read two six six yeah six by him and tried his poetry and his other works and you know they can kind of take it or leave it. Haven't you yeah. recommended that book to a lot of people? And was it part of one of your book clubs or didn't you read it with a group before? Oh, I haven't I haven't done it as a book club yet, but people are asking to mm. do it. But I do recommend it and. People, you know, are amazed that, and then they, you know, he died very young and he left behind all these manuscripts. And so they've been publishing them. Like Third Reich was written after his death and the Paris Review serialized it. So it came out uh, in four parts over the span of a year. And I always look forward to the Paris Review, but I, I really look forward to each issue because they were you know, it, it, it's a hypnotic story, the Third Reich. It's the, there's a mysterious man with like burns on his body who shows up at this beach in I think France, and then his backstory unfolds. Right. Okay. Well, that's a good pick. I will move on to my number two, which okay. is another one that's been on my list since we started. And for this one, we go to Asia and Japan in particular, and take uh, Kawabata. Uh, who oh. is a short story writer. That's what I mainly know him for. I think he wrote novels as well. But he was the first Japanese writer to win the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1968. And what I've read of him has just struck me as being very spare and lyrical. And he is one of those writers of short stories who is trying to do a lot by doing less 
And that's always something that I admire and appreciate when you finish up a, an author like Bolaño. It's nice to retreat to something where it's almost like working like a poem or a haiku, where it's uh, giving you this impression or this sense and it might be a bit of mood or it might be uh, uh, it's not plot with 50 characters. It's mm-hmm. a uh, something that's taking you on this journey or giving you this this little object. And so I will look forward to rereading Kawabata and we will have that on our list of authors to explore. That sounds good. Okay, we are up to number three. For you, what is your third pick on your list? So I picked the poet, uh, Mary Oliver. Oh, yeah. I did not have that as a Mike special, but I had it. Uh, that's someone that we've we've gotten a lot of requests for her, and yeah. I love her poetry. So that's one we should do together. So I, I don't really know her poetry, but my daughter is, that's her favorite poet. Mm. And she has you know, a number of her books. She has a book of poetry essays by her. And I was startled to learn she's like by far the best-selling American poet. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah, she and she's from the Midwest, but she spent the majority of her life in New England in Provincetown. Yeah. And she mainly writes about nature. Yeah. But I, I was I was looking at her poetry. There's a poem that begins, Where does the temple begin? Where does it end? And the opening stanza is, There are things you can't reach, but you can reach out to them and all day long. Hmm. And yeah, I think we should do an episode on her. I think there's uh, you know, the influence of Whitman on her poetry. And it's very, um, it's like a voice that sticks in your head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was very uh, accomplished and um, certainly, uh, you know, won a lot of prizes and very popular. I do wonder if a lot of the popularity was because of that that nature aspect. I think there are a lot of Americans who are reading poetry looking for that, you know, looking for geese and fields yeah. and marshes and sunsets and uh, the the wind rustling through the wheat and that kind of thing i don't read poetry for that i mean i you know but i i love seamus heaney Mm. and he has a collection trying to think what it's called but it's basically about soil they're like 85 poems about soil that i read (laughs) that i loved i was shocked but it was every day i would read a poem by him I think we talked about that when I was interviewing Professor Bill, my old friend, who uh, I think he chose the Seamus Heaney poem for, we did an episode on dad poetry, and the theme was, uh-huh. it was for Father's Day. And I think one of them was Seamus Heaney talking about his father and his father's dirt under his fingernails or the way he would, the way he dug or with a shovel or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I I find myself gravitating toward poems that are very like over intellectual I, I sort of enjoy that mm. but then like someone like Seamus Heaney or Louise Gluck another person that was uh, a request mm-hmm. it's the word isn't basic but there's something else like the focus is like 
just very narrow and concrete. And I'm surprised how much it appeals to me. Because normally I'm like, like I was reading this poem by Auden, Epitaph on a Tyrant, and it begins, perfection of a kind was what he was after, and the poetry he invented was easy to understand. He knew human folly like the back of his hand. And I was thinking, like, this is the kind of poetry I love, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little, like, you know, it's a little pretentious. I mean, <laughs> uh, gee, Mike, <laughs> I feel like, uh, I feel like you're you're learning things about yourself that maybe uh, people who know and love you have known for. <laughs> I've been waiting for you to to discover. <laughs> you know that that you you've always known that you've been a you you self identify as pretentious. <laughs> I guess I forget when I was reading Epitaph for on a of a tyrant. I, I just thought like, wow, this is interesting. I wonder why I like it. Didn't you <laughs> used to call yourself a literary snob? That that was kind of your you embraced the role as. A snob being someone who was there to appreciate the finer things, but to clear out a lot of the uh, the less worthy. <laughs> I was try- I was trying to take the the word snob back, back <laughs> right place, rightful place. Yeah. Okay. Well, on that note, let's take our break, and we will come back with my pick number three. Okay, we're back. We are choosing 10 episodes or 10 authors that we are going to do as episodes. And these have been suggested by listeners who are also Instagram account followers of the History of Literature. They responded to a poll. And I, even though I just said we're taking 10 authors, I'm going to do a go for a twofer here. And I will, uh, there were so many French suggestions. Oh, wait, I did want to mention that I think we did talk about a poem of Mary Oliver's somewhere in the archive. So that's probably in oh, one of did? the ones. Yeah, I've got it somewhere. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, it was one of our theme episodes like gratitude or something. So it's somewhere in there, I think. In any case, back to my number three pick. There are a lot of French authors, as I mentioned, who were on this list. And it made me realize, even though we've done Many we have not done nearly enough, and so I'm going to take a pair of them that I have been wanting to do ever since we started, which is Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. And both of them, authors I've always loved. I think people just love that period of France during World War II and afterwards and the cafe culture and existentialism and the two of them being 
their relationship is very interesting and just the the brain power applied to philosophy as well as plays and novels and politics and literature and they just kind of stand for an era where it was very cool to be a literature fan and, and a practitioner of it. There's just something uh, something about that era is very romantic. Now who's the snob? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's. I think. I think the. You know, that's the whole thing with book clubs is that the the more people you you can find uh, on on your same wavelength or at least trying to be on the same wavelength by reading the same book, you know, the the more the more you read. I mean, yeah. And they were. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna say I don't consider them to be too remote and uh i don't think it's too difficult to access i mean they were uh, the second sex is a book that i read cover to cover and i think a lot of people have as well and i think i've read about half of being in nothingness i guess but i've read his plays and oh yeah no exits great yeah and i read uh nausea so you can jump in and find something in there. And if and yeah. you can also just kind of read about his ideas. Existentialism is kind of fun to think about, even if you're not following the... Uh, it gets pretty dense and pretty intricate, and it gets pretty contentious. I think there's a lot of uh, arguing over logical flaws and so on as, as far as the philosophy goes. But it just taking it as kind of from the maybe at the level of Camus, which is an episode that we have done, is, mm. I think, pretty interesting and kind of gives you a good sense of what the 20th century was all about. Yeah. I was going to say that the major events that happened in the, the early 20th century, you know, you, you can look at it as um, kind of the, 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 the seeds of ex existentialism. And maybe with the kind of stuff that's happening today, we might see more of a more of a movement in terms of Literature and philosophy. We'll see. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so we are up to your number four. So I went with the uh, with Tove Ditlevsen, uh, the Copenhagen trilogy. I, I just read the last book as part of a, a book club, Dependency. Oh, so, okay. So, so now I know how it ends, but I was told that it really doesn't matter what order you read them. And I, I think that's true. Mm. Um I think she's a fascinating figure too. You know, she she was hugely successful in her twenties, but she wasn't considered serious literature because she was writing autofiction, which back then was not considered avant-garde, which is very funny to think. Yeah, because <laughs> it was considered like you know airport, as someone described it. It's like airport literature, right? Even though there was drugs and like divorces and betrayals and yeah but people who writers really respected her like the evelyn waugh met her and was very impressed and she was just part of this copenhagen literary set and invited to all these parties in paris and london and i just think she's a fascinating figure i'm gonna read the first two books of the trilogy uh soon yeah and I had that actually as a potential Mike special because <laughs> reading that she was the precursor to Nausgaard made right. me think it would you would find that interesting to 
see if he was drawing on her example in some way. Yeah, I, I, I think she reminds me of a lot of contemporaries, and she was writing, I think, in the the fifties. Mm-hmm. It's also just again like I like sad literature. I mean, she Tove committed suicide, mm. and some of the stuff that I read about independency is yeah is horrific. I mean, it's that's my. I have a kind of a, uh, I don't know if it's a blind spot, if that's the right word, an Achilles heel or just a, the thing mm-hmm. that I find I avoid the most in literature or in films or anything are stories of addiction. It's yeah. the thing that I I can deal with a lot and I can deal with a lot of sadness and I can deal with a lot of difficult events, uh, but reading up close and personal stories about people going through addiction just tears me apart. Yeah. Oh, I mean, you can't put this book down. Mm. When I read Dependency, I probably read, you know, a hundred pages in one shot. Yeah. Because there's this one section where it's just so, it's almost like a fairy tale. It's like a horror story fairy tale. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's, it's just brilliant. Mm. Okay, well, that's a good pick. Are any of these that you've taken ones that you want to do? Uh, do you want to fly solo on any episodes? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, those I, were popular when you. I think you. Yeah. What have you done? Three, and they're all uh, David Foster Wallace, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I'd, I'd be happy to do any of them. Okay. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I could do the Tove one. Yeah. Well, just let me know. I mean, it's okay. really up to you. The okay. uh, you uh, have carte blanche. Okay, so we are up to my number four. I'm going to jump around a little bit here. I've got others on the list, but I guess we'll stay in France, but we'll do an American, and that is Henry Miller. And I think the reason why I want to do Henry Miller, I've got an episode on him in the works where we're, uh, I actually have a guest lined up, who someone who worked at the Henry Miller Museum, and oh, has wow. uh, a lot of inside knowledge, not just of the museum and Henry Miller and his life and, and so on, but who comes to the Henry Miller Museum and what are they looking for when they get there? I mean, he was kind of a, he's got a sort of guru figure about, you know, he's somebody people look to for a certain thing or at a certain period in their life or in their own development. But I also feel like he, there was this kind of, renaissance in the 90s where people mm-hmm. all of a sudden every and i don't know what that was from if that was because the movie henry and june came out or what exactly was happening or anna east nin maybe her diaries were published or something happened in the 90s where all of a sudden everyone was mm-hmm. talking about henry miller and i can't really put my finger on why that was but i'd be interested in i'm hoping that the uh guest who worked at the henry miller museum will be able to help us unpack that mystery a little bit. Yeah, I, I had him on my list of people I, I have to reread before I could do the, the episode because I think some people, I have a, a pretty strong sense, but I, I put um, Henry Miller on the must reread list. Mm, yeah, I also want to reread. I think a lot of people read him curious about the obscenity charges or the... Mm-hmm wondering, well, why was this banned and how explicit is it and reading it kind of through that lens. But one of my friends is very interested in Henry, Henry Miller from a class perspective and kind of the uh, here's what it's like to be 
sort of a hard scrabble writer and to be trying to do things on less money or without a job and that kind of, uh, you know, a real working class attitude. And I'll be interested in reading it from that perspective as well to see if how different is it from, say, Jack Kerouac or yeah. uh, someone, one of his contemporaries. And will I see a more kind of a more radical position coming out of Henry Miller? I didn't I don't remember noticing that when I read him back in the 90s. Yeah, I mean, I I really enjoyed Tropic of Cancer, I think more than On the Road. Mm. Um, but I think also the fact that it was in Paris. I mean, a, a sport and a pastime is also set in Paris, right? The James Salter book? Yeah. Uh, it, is it? He's I, driving through France, I think. Okay. I think I went through a phase when I was reading Henry Miller where I was reading a, just anything that's set in Paris, like The Lover by Marguerite Duras. <laughs> part of it is set in Paris. So I probably have romanticized it to death that had the Tropic of Cancer. So I just looked it up. It's the town of Autun in Burgundy. Oh, okay. It's not Paris. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we are, are we already up to number five on your list? Last pick. I liken this to pick, like, it's like picking Joe Montana in the third round. It's, <laughs> it's just like, a, just, you know, a top, top pick with my last one. It's, uh, you know, theory. You know, literary theory like Roland Barthes and a little Derrida, a little Michel Foucault. And there's a lot of personal stuff involved, you know, with theory for me because I reached a point where I was kind of sick of literature. And I think I was sick of the fact that it was just gnawing on me that I was just reading stories. Mm. And so there was like a part of me that wanted like ideas and so I just dived into literary theory and also ancient philosophy. And then I made my way back to to literature through people like, you know, Thomas Mann and Herman Hesse, mm-hmm. like books like Magic Mountain and Glass Beat Game and like Man Without Qualities and, you know, George Eliot. And I, I think it just it, then it settled in my mind that the kind of literature I like are books that almost uh, rival philosophy. Saul Bellow. Yeah, I mean, it's just... Herman Hess, uh, that was one of the requests we had. And I had that down as a Mike special. I also had Theory down as a Mike special. (laughs) And I think we did one, and I can't remember, was it because were we focused on Marxist theory in particular? Or there was one we did where we talked about theory. I can't remember what exactly we were going after in that one. Oh, you know what? You're right. You gave us an overview of Marxist authors to read i think oh right oh right because we did an episode was it you did an episode on marx yeah and then we followed that up with marxist critics to read or something okay well that's a great one and that'll be fun to do it's always fun to sort of learn about the the critics and kind of the angle they were taking and and what it meant i heard a a great i'll tell this story now i was gonna I was going to save it for the start of an episode, but I'll tell it now where I don't know if this actually happened. I wasn't there or anything, but I've seen this going around the Internet and it it I want it to be true. But this, <laughs> the story was that Derrida had come to America and was giving a, a lecture and it was at the height of his popularity. And you probably remember this. There was sort of a. Uh, a lot of people thought Derrida was a scam, that it was it was a joke. 
you know, that it was so hard to follow or to understand, or there was something about deconstruction, you know, that it was just, uh, they thought everyone was being duped, you know, and, uh, (laughs) I don't think that's true, but I, I, it gives you a sense of just how mysterious it kind of was to a lot of the audience. But anyway, apparently he came to a university packed lecture hall and he started giving a lecture and it was all about cows and uh, everyone is furiously taking notes and they're a little bit stumped, but like, Oh, I guess this is a new thing that he's, he's developing, or I guess we're, we're getting in on this new theory he's putting forward here. And so they're, they're all taking notes and everything. And this goes on for half an hour, an hour or something. And then Derrida takes a break and he, comes back after 15 minutes and they all settle into their chairs again and get ready to keep taking notes on this new theory Derrida's got on cows. And Derrida starts out and says, I have been informed that the correct pronunciation is chaos. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. And I do remember I had an Italian professor. I can remember that we we were doing some kind of episode on chaos and she pronounced it cows. And I guess in French, maybe they do as well. Maybe, you know, but it, (laughs) Oh my God. Such a great story. Well, you know, that shows you that, you know, he was so revered, you know, he Zizek, you know, Jean-François Lyotel, like all these people, they were so revered. They could say stuff that, uh, you know, I'm going to talk about cows. Yeah. And it'd right. be like, oh, it must like tie in to yeah. something. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. and we'll all be writing books about this five years from now. Yeah. And so I'll add that as much as I love literary theory and all the literary theory books I have, and I have a couple of them that actually apply literary theory to books I like, just kills the book. Just absolutely kills the book. <laughs> like talking about all the binary oppositions in Flaubert. I mean, it's just, you know, you just want to like run away from the book. Yeah. I think theory is interesting on its own. I don't ever use theory to help me appreciate a great book. I, yeah, I learn more reading poetry essays about literary theory. Hmm. Uh, about reading literature than I ever did from literary theory. Yeah. I, I really recommend I We could do an episode on poetry essays. I think Robert Hatz has some great essays and Louise Gluck has. Yeah. I think she teaches at Yale and there's the Yale Poetry Prize. That's a really prestigious prize. And she often plugs all the runner-ups. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like John Ashbery won. Like people who win are like, you know, tremendous poets, but the the runner-ups are yeah. very successful. So, uh, the person who requested that we do literary theory also mentioned literary periods, and that's mm-hmm. not something I don't think we've done that. But we did centuries, I know. But did yeah. we ever do a draft of movements? We take no. or we would take romanticism or modernism or that yeah. kind of thing. I guess we haven't done that. That's kind of an obvious one. I guess we should have done that by now. But that could be another one on our list. Yeah, we could do. I mean, we could do movements slash schools. Yeah, because there's they're definitely like hysterical realism, mm. and like the John Barts, yeah, John Barth uh, Bartholomew school, you know. <laughs> right. Okay. 
That's good. Okay, well, my since this is the last pick, I will just do a little rundown of <laughs> uh, four candidates that I could have all gone in this slot. They were all great suggestions. And a lot of these, one of the categories I sort of had is I'm surprised that a guest hasn't offered to do this or this will be one that would be especially good if we get the right guest. And usually it's because it's very historical or it's someone I don't know as much about. And three of them are on this list. And then the fourth one I just thought would be a fun one to do. So the three are Indian classics and the golden trio of Indian English literature, R.K. Narayan, Mulk Raj Anand, and Raja Rao. That would be a good one to do, especially with a good guest. Uh, four great classical novels of Chinese literature. I think I've done one of these, but the, doing the other three would be good. Maybe we'll do a month of that where we do one each week for a month. Journey to the West, Outlaws of the Mar Marsh, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, and Dream of the Red Chamber. And then Horatio Quiroga, who was not someone I was familiar with. He's a Uruguayan playwright, and he's kind of a late 19th century uh, early 20th century, but he he follows in the footsteps of Edgar Allan Poe, and he apparently writes with these hallucinatory mental states that just sounds amazing. So I'm looking forward <laughs> to reading him, and then uh, we'll talk about him. Maybe we'll combine that with Halloween this year. And then the last one is Renata Adler. Have you read her at all? I, I yeah I love her I that was actually going to be my six pick I okay six, yeah I she is something I heard her read before the pandemic and she's a major New York literary figure yeah right and she's kind of a uh, she's formidable I mean yeah. she she's kind of she's a fixture on the New York literary scene but she was also like a bomb thrower. And she was unafraid to make powerful enemies. And her big thing that she's famous for, in addition to Speedboat, her first novel, yeah, and some of her short stories and just her writing for The New Yorker is, is also that she... Uh, I kind of wish I had, I had used this in uh, when we did Hatchet Jobs of the great <laughs> literary takedowns, that she took on Pauline Kael when Pauline uh, Kael was like the sacred cow of the... Of uh, mm -hmm. not just movie and film criticism, but just as the New Yorker, she was probably the most popular New Yorker writer. I mean, she was she was huge, and Renata Adler took her down. Which uh, there's <laughs> the essay about Pauline Kael is just it's kind of a masterpiece of venomous prose, and it's almost like a throwback to those earlier eras that we were discussing when we did Hatchet Jobs, where people were. <laughs> You know, they, they weren't afraid to take each other on in print. And it was a real, uh, maybe I'll do a little episode where I just read some excerpts from that essay. Yeah, you should. I mean, she has such a great eye for detail. I remember uh, in Speedboat, there's, um, she talks about, I don't know if she was in this classroom or she was observing it, but a teacher was talking to preschoolers and the teacher was trying to teach the kids how America stands for freedom and you know we have all these liberties and aren't you glad so she made the teacher made each kid stand up and say I'm free so each kid 
you know, took a turn standing up saying, I'm free. And then they got to this one kid and he stands up and goes, I'm four. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, just, it so perfectly sums up, you know, conformity and <laughs> learning <laughs> these kind of lessons. So, yeah, no, she, I think I find her very, very funny. And Yeah. And she was really smart. I can't remember if she was a scientist originally or something, but she was some kind of, she had a PhD from Yale in something, or I'll, I'll look into it more when maybe we'll do an, a whole episode on Renata Adler, but that'll be a, a fun one to do. So I had one runner up, which is uh, after Renata Adler as my number six, which is screen adaptations that don't work. And also films that to me are almost like books. Okay, so screen adaptations that don't work. I had that in one of my categories. Do you want to know what it was? Sure. The category is episodes we've already done. <laughs> Mike, <laughs> we, did a, we did a whole draft. We did First, we did a draft on great literary adaptations, and then we did one on, I can't remember what we called it, something like uh, dogs or something like that. We did it on like terrible adaptations clunkers or i can't remember uh, we had some maybe that's maybe i chose <laughs> it because i feel strongly about it <laughs> well maybe there's more maybe we could go back and listen to it and and there's probably 10 more we could come up with i do remember in the uh great literary adaptations that you took the uh what was the book that die hard was based on by roderick thorpe was it called die hard or was it called something else no it was something but that was one of your yeah, that yeah. was one of your selections. Roderick Thorpe was prolific, by the way. <laughs> Nothing lasts forever. Was that his? Yes. <laughs> Good memory. Yeah. Roderick Thorpe. You're one of the few who have read that, I think. Not only have I read that, but I've read the novelization of Die Hard. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, in case people don't know what a novelization is, it's a film. That is so loved that they get a ghostwriter to yeah. write the film in novel form. Right. And people would buy that. Yeah. <laughs> I read the novelization of the original Alien. Yeah, oh, right. <laughs> I had a bu- I had a bunch when I was a kid. They they did one of Star Wars. They did one of I read uh, that too. Yeah. E.T. There was one. I remember. And I remember the novelization of E.T. had used M&M's. because i think they were it was too expensive to like pay for Reese's pieces that's the thing although i don't think it was that they had to pay for it i think it was they wanted m&ms to pay them and Mm m&ms didn't want to pay enough and Reese's pieces jumped in and said well we (laughs) we are clearly going to uh make our money back on this one with uh you know steven spielberg was like he had done jaws and Indiana Jones at that point, I think. So clearly it was going to be a huge blockbuster. So, yeah, it's kind of a weird thing, though. M&M's would make so much more sense than Reese's Pieces. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's uh, leave things there unless you have any other last thoughts about episodes past or episodes for the future. I was just going to note that a couple of requests I could talk about one book by that person, but mm. not more than that. Like Kenzaburo Oe, mm-hmm. I love his memoir novel, A Personal Matter. Mm-hmm. 
But, you know, I have a couple of other books that I picked up at used bookstores, but I've just never gotten around to reading them. And I, you know, I'm not sure I ever will. Yeah. They're just like sitting there on my, I have like various piles and they're in my, like my third tier. Mm. You know, that reminded me before we wrap up here, I did want to go through this where I put down my category of Mike special and I want to get your thoughts on these of whether these were honorable mentions for you or whether I was mistaken in thinking that this would be one that you would be interested in doing. So one was Literary Brat Pack, McInerney, Tart, Brett Eaton Ellis, and Janowitz. I, I I initially had it like as my number five because I, <laughs> I have read Tama Janowitz. Yeah. I've read all of them. I'm not sure there are many people around. <laughs> Who've read them? Yeah, well, people of a cer- who were around at a certain time, they were all pretty popular in in their day. But yeah, it's getting uh, getting a little bit. I wouldn't expect anyone under the age of thirty to have really read any of them, except maybe here and there they'd read a Secret History or Bright Lights, Big City, or maybe American Psycho, I guess. But I mean, I've read everything by Jay McInerney. Yeah. <laughs> the I, wine criticism. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I have his Japanese novel. You know, <laughs> right. about the white guy who goes to Japan and falls in love with a Japanese woman. <laughs> right. Okay. Next one, Milan Kundera. Uh, that's one of those one book ones. I mm. mean, I have read other books by him, but the book of laughter and forgetting, it's just another being 22 and reading that and having graduate college and thinking, you know, that my life has shrunk now that I've graduated college. Yeah. It was, I think the book was. It was like a like a drug. Like, yeah. He's another one who gives you that flavor of philosophy. Yeah, definitely. Okay. This one, I'm not sure how to pronounce. It's Yoris uh, Carl. Is it Wiesmans? Is, it, is that how you say that? H-U-Y-S-M-A-N-S. And it's a French novelist. Decadent tells the story of a nature-hating esthete. I thought that might be a Mike special, just based on the description. <laughs> you know, I've never, I've never read that. Wiesmans, maybe Wiesmans. I don't know. Uh, Bulgakov, we've talked about. Oh yeah, Master of Margarita. Yeah, that's one of your favorites, right? And Herman Hesse, we mentioned. Kensborough OA, I had. Yates, I had. Milano, I had. I had Ditlevsen. Uh, we're almost at literary theory. I guess I was really uh, nailing these as Mike specials. <laughs> a lot of your picks, and are all your picks maybe? Uh, Don DeLillo. I thought would be a Mike special, and I guess that was it. Yeah. You, you, oh, and Cormac McCarthy, we've talked about doing forever. He gets requested probably more than any other person, and he's got a couple of novel, new novels coming out in the fall. But yes. for some reason, I just can never get myself motivated to tackle him. Well, one thing I was thinking is maybe we should pick a book and just do a two-person book club. Hmm. A, a book that comes out that, you know, we can both agree on reading. Yeah. Contemporary in an effort to, you know, reel in some of the younger listeners. <laughs> right, right. Like a a book by someone who's, say, 25 that you and I might, yeah. Like Sally Rooney. Like everyone, you know. She was on the list. She was requested. She's she's a huge success. And I, I, I love this about her. She basically says I won't do readings or conferences or interviews because mm. there's just you, you should just be reading my work. 
Right. Oh, interesting. Well, we'll see if we can get her on the show. <laughs> you don't turn down the History of Literature podcast, Mike. <laughs> Not unless you want your career to go the way of Pauline Kales after Renata Adler took her down. All she did was like continue to be the most famous uh, film critic in the world. <laughs> okay, well, let's leave things there. Uh, Mike, as always, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Mike, our old friend, for joining me. Did you hear the part where I said this is episode 400 and Mike said, wow, I think that's a testament to... And I thought he might be about to say something nice about me. Like, that's a testament to your persistence and hard work, Jack. Something like that. I was getting ready to reply with an aw shucks. Who, me? And... going to trace a few circles in the dirt with my toe, my face hot with bashful good humor. And he said, well, I think that's a testament to the passion that people have for reading and literature or whatever it was he said, which cracked me up. Me thwarted. Once again, this show doesn't just make itself, people. But hey, I get it. And he's not wrong either. If we had zero listeners, I would have quit long ago. I suppose there's something very, there's, seriously, there's something very humbling about having so many people out there who are reading and who are tuning in and listening to the podcast. It makes me wish I could do a better job, but I am doing the best I can. I promise you that. The best I can under the circumstances. Anyway, but I do echo that feeling It's a bit overwhelming at times. I owe an awful lot to an awful lot of you, of all y'all, to my guests, including Mike, but also many others as well, to the literature itself, I suppose, to my sponsors, to my family for accepting that I will be tucked away working on these shows inexplicably at times. But most of all, yes... Most of all, to you, the listeners, 400 episodes. It's hard to believe. I'm glad you've been here for some or all of them, and I hope you'll come back for more. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.